Hey First Readers, Tim here. Rachel has the week off. Thanks for tuning in to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. This week we're looking at Numbers 21, 4 through 9, the first reading from March 14th, 2021, which is the fourth Sunday in Lent this year. And friends, this is a weird passage. The reason we're reading it in the lectionary this week is because the gospel lesson is John 3, where right before the famous John 3.16, For God so loved the world, is the slightly less famous John 3.14-15, which says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world, etc., etc., our text in Numbers is the backstory behind that reference in John when Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness. But it's a strange little tale. In the context of Numbers, we're still in the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, that 40-year period between their liberation from Egypt and their entry into the Promised Land. And this starts out as a complaint story. Verse 5 says, The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. If this sounds familiar, it's because there's several stories with this form in Exodus and Numbers, and we've talked about them on the pod before, most notably in our conversation with Dr. Valerie Bridgman on Exodus 17. You should definitely check out that episode. This story in Numbers 21 is the very last of the complaint stories. And on a narrative level, that might have something to do with God's response this time around. God sends poisonous snakes among the complainers, and many of them are bitten and poisoned to death. No wonder they stopped complaining after this. Well, the people repent, and when Moses prays to God on their behalf, God instructs him to fashion a bronze snake and hold it up on a pole. Anyone who had been bitten could gaze up at that bronze snake, and when they did, they were healed. And that's the end of the story. I know, so strange, right? So let's try to think exegetically about this passage. Here's some of the linguistic and cultural stuff going on under the hood. One key word here is the Hebrew word for snake, nachash. Which even sounds a bit snaky when you say it, don't you think? Nachash. There's some wordplay here because the word for bronze, or really for copper here, is nachoshet. Hear that? Nachash, nachoshet. Why is there wordplay with the choice of metal used here? Well, more on that in a second. Another word worth knowing here is the word that the NRSV translates poisonous. It actually means fiery or burning. It's the Hebrew word saraf. And if your ears are tingling, it's because you know saraf or seraph as a kind of angelic being. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee. But these weren't cute little precious moments angels. Seraphs, seraphim, were fiery serpentine angels. Pretty dang scary. Anyway, there's some ambiguity about how the word's used in this context. When God sends the snakes in verse 6, they're called Hanachashim Hasrafim, that is, the fiery snakes. And a lot of commenters attribute that adjective, Serafim, fiery, 
to the burning sensation caused by the poisonous snake bite. That could be. But I wonder if there's something here about these snakes being divine agents of judgment that is calling up that angelic imagery. These snakes were in a way otherworldly, fiery, scary, deadly. The other weird thing in verse 6 is that the definite articles used. These aren't just any old fiery snakes. These are the fiery snakes. Ha-nechashim, ha-serafim. Which also leads me to the idea that these are envisioned as a kind of divine special forces sent in by God for just this kind of strike. Anyway, in verse 8, when God tells Moses to make a snake and put it on a pole, the word used there is saraf, seraph. But when Moses follows those instructions in verse 9, it says he made a nachash nachoshet, a copper snake. So there's some back and forth with these terms that blends the this-worldly and the otherworldly. The other sort of snaky thing going on here is that from ancient times on, snakes have been an ambiguous symbol representing both danger and healing. In addition to having a deadly bite, people observed the way that snakes shed their skin and interpreted that as a kind of renewal or or even immortality. And as a side note here, that's why there's a snake in the Garden of Eden. Snakes had the secret to eternal life. Genesis 3 even says that the snake was the wisest of the creatures and tempted Eve with the prospect of becoming immortal and wise like God. But that's a tangent and a conversation for another time. Anyway, snakes have therefore been a symbol of healing throughout the ages. And even in our modern world, many of the symbols of the medical profession feature snakes. The snakes on a pole, no less. Now, I should say a little about the worldview that's embedded in this story. The way that God heals the people here is by what we would call today sympathetic magic. And this is probably why the story strikes us as so strange with our modern reflex against unscientific magical things. But in the ancient world, there was a widespread understanding that if you were suffering from some known cause, You could make something that represents that thing, focus your attention on it, and it would help in some way. That's sympathetic magic. And if you need a sort of scientific connection to this sort of thing, remember that the placebo effect is a very real psychosomatic cure for some ailments. This sympathetic magic slash placebo thing actually worked in enough cases that it makes sense that pre-modern people would generalize that into a widespread medical spiritual thing. So in a story where seraphs are killing the Israelites, it made sense to make a model seraph for them to focus on and be healed. I think this is why the wordplay on Nachash and Nachoshet is here too. I imagine it strengthens the connection between the model and the real thing if the model's made out of something whose name actually sounds like the thing, Nachash Nachoshet. So the model here is both visual and auditory. Another example of this kind of sympathetic magic in the Bible is in 1 Samuel 5-6, which I'm working on for my dissertation, so I have it sort of front of mind here. You might remember that this is when the Ark of God was taken by the Philistines, and as a result, a plague of some sort of tumors 
broke out on the Philistines. Well, to resolve this plague, their priests advised them to what? To make model tumors out of gold and to send them with the ark to Israel's God. Same principle. This is the, the same sort of thing that's behind voodoo dolls. And, and I don't mean any sacrilege here, but there's something of this concept in the ritual of the Eucharist in which we experience the spiritual effects of Jesus' body and blood by focusing our attention on a kind of sympathetic model of Jesus in the bread and wine. Now, I'm not making a theological judgment about sympathetic magic here. Even if it is a purely human cultural phenomenon, this wouldn't be the first or the last time that God has seen fit to be at work among us by inhabiting beliefs and customs that are shall we say, less than scientific. God meets us where we're at. So I see God's recipe for sympathetic magic in this text as an expression of divine condescension, or to use easier language, grace. In response to the people's repentance, God offers them healing in cultural packaging that they would recognize and access. So there's lots of interesting stuff in this short, short tale. But how could you preach this? Well, here's, here's a couple ideas to get you started. First of all, I'll admit, this story is hard to preach. And I would caution against sermons that are all about not complaining to God or about how if you do complain, God will send snakes, or if not snakes, then some other terror that the snakes are a metaphor for after you. I don't think that's a helpful avenue to pursue. I think if I were trying to preach this story, I would situate it among the wider series of complaint stories in, in this section of the Bible and look to find ways to actually empathize with the Israelites. In this case, in context, their most straightforward path to their destination in Canaan has been recently blocked by the Edomites who are forcing them to trek the long way around Edom. In the meantime, one of their most beloved leaders, Aaron, has just died. So they are a people without a home and, to their eyes, an uncertain future. No wonder they keep looking back at their lives in Egypt and wondering if they made the right choice following God out into the desert. They've lost sight of their calling, as we sometimes do just as easily. By contrast, God keeps moving them steadily toward their destination, baby step by baby step. When they get hungry, God feeds them. When they get thirsty, God gives them water. Even when they draw God's seraphim upon themselves, God also offers a means of healing and a forward progress. So, I mean, this isn't a slam dunk of a sermon point, I'll give you that. But in its own complicated way, this story is part of God's continuing faithfulness to fulfill God's promises to these people and bring them home. Perhaps there's a message in that struggle for us in the midst of our own plague, longing for the before times. How is God calling us to trust to seek healing and to look toward the future with expectation of God's long-term provision for us, and especially for the young generation that's weathering this pandemic, who needs us to stop dwelling on our past comfort and instead work on a future on the other side of this pandemic for their sake. 
So another angle you might consider for a sermon, if you're thinking of preaching on John 3, is to spend some time in this Numbers 21 passage in your sermon to set the stage for Jesus' statement about the Son of Man being lifted up. Bringing the backstory into the foreground does something pretty remarkable for John 3. Remember, in Numbers, the snakes came and dealt out death because of the sin of the people. And then it was a snake lifted up that paradoxically became the means of life in the midst of the plague. The snake represented both death and life. In John, there's something of that same dual meaning, that paradox, in the cross of Jesus. The cross was an instrument of death, and it was brought upon Jesus because of the rebellion of the people. A rebellion, I might add, that we all participate in in our own way. So when we look at the cross, there's a sense in which we ought to say, we did this. This is our doing. I'm responsible for this expression of death. And you know, that's a Lenten theme, taking responsibility for our participation in the brokenness of the world. But, paradoxically, the same cross on which Jesus was lifted up has become for us a source of life. When we set our gaze upon it and look with faith upon the one who hung on that pole, his renewed life, his resurrection, becomes ours as well. So we're getting into some deep theology here, but you all are the homileticians and I bet you could find ways to talk about these profound things in language that your congregation will be able to understand and make spiritual use of. So I'll leave it there for now. Rachel will be back with us next week. And in the meantime, you can find us at firstreadingpodcast.com and on the Facebook, as well as iTunes and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Oh, one last thing. For any of you out there who like to title your sermons, if someone doesn't preach a sermon on this titled Snakes on a Plane, P-L-A-I-N, I will be very disappointed. I'm Tim McNinch. Have a great week. <laughs>